0: Enterprise applications often evolve into large and complex monolithic architectures that can often be quite challenging to maintain. This makes adopting a microservice architecture very appealing for most modern organizations who would like to undergo digital transformation. But as with most things, this is easier said than done, not just because of the technology related challenges, but also because of the way people react to change, as well as their preconceived notions as to what microservices should be. In this episode of Cocktails, we talk to an industry expert on the microservice anti-patterns that have emerged over the years, how to avoid said anti-patterns, why both monoliths and microservices can become mistakes, and how we can strangle the monolith.
1: Welcome to Coding Over Cocktails, a podcast by Toro Cloud. Here we talk about digital transformation, application integration, low-code application development, data management, and business process automation. Catch some expert insights as we sit down with industry leaders who share tips on how enterprises can take on the challenge of digital transformation. Take a seat, join us for a round. Here are your hosts, Kevin Montalbo and Toro Cloud CEO and founder, David Brown.
0: Joining us today, as always, for a round of cocktails is ToroCloud CEO and founder, David Brown. Hi, David. How's Sydney?
1: Good day, Kevin. That's pretty Wet and cloudy today,
0: unfortunately. Oh, <laughs> okay. And our guest for today is an experienced software architect and entrepreneur who provides consulting and training for organizations to successfully use a microservices architecture. He's the guy behind microservices.io, which outlines a pattern language that helps users decide if microservices are a good fit for their organization. He's also the author of Microservices Patterns and Pojo's in Action, both published by Manning and is a Java champion as well as a Java One speaker and speaks regularly at conferences all over the world on software development. Today, of course, he joins us for a round of cocktails. Chris Richardson, welcome to the show.
2: Oh, thanks. It's good to be here. Sadly, I don't actually have a cocktail. It's just a cup of peppermint tea. But <laughs>
0: <laughs> Yeah, no problem. I have a coffee. Yeah, (laughs) it's too early for a cocktail here in the Philippines, too. All right. So uh, let's talk first about your startup, uh, Eventuate IO. Uh, Can you explain to us what challenges associated with microservices are you trying to address over there? So, you know, if you think
2: about what is the microservice architecture, right? It's architectural style that structures the application as a set of loosely coupled services, which sounds super simple. But one immediate consequence of that is that services should not share databases. They should not share database tables. And ideally, they should not share database servers either, because that introduces both design time and runtime coupling. So if you think about, you know take a really simple use case like creating an order, You know, that you create an order in the order service, but at the same time, in order to make sure that the order can be created, you have to reserve credit in the customer service and say potentially inventory in the inventory service, right? So you've got a request that spans multiple services. You can't just use regular transactions. You can't use distributed transactions. You can't can't use two-phase commit. So instead you you have to use some pa- a pattern known as the saga pattern. Um, and there's a couple of other ones as well. And basically you you have these distributed data patterns. And Eventuate is an open source framework that enables you to solve those problems. Either the it provides either an implementation of these patterns or, or the building blocks that let you Um, use the pattern in a way that's appropriate for your application.
1: In 2018, you released the book Microservices Patterns with Manning. Uh, It's been praised for its uh, being a must-read book on on patterns and architectures. A few years have passed since then. Has anything changed? Was there anything you would update in that book? Or are we still uh, largely following the same architectural principles that you outlined there?
2: Yeah. Um, Yeah, what's interesting, if you actually think about the book, It was written more or less over a two-year period. I think, like late 2016, all the way to mid 2018. And you know, I think what's remarkable is I I actually think it's all for them generally pretty valid still, right? Like you know, it's all set around key patterns. I think there's like 40 40 plus patterns in the book, right? And you know, they're, 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 they're still very applicable. Now, I, you know, certainly you could say that, you know, since writing the book or even while writing the book, I, I did a tremendous amount of consulting and training, which gave me insights into like how organizations use the kind of adopt microservices and use them. And certainly some of the technology has matured, um, you know, you could say maybe in the beginning Kubernetes was not that well established, and of course now it is, and and so on. So, so sort of the core stuff, I think, is is still, you know, yeah, you know, the core of it is very, very stable. Now, one day, yeah, could I write a second edition? I think I could. Um, so, you know, a few things come to mind. So, for example, um, you know, in chapter two of my book, I described a process for defining a microservice architecture, you know, based on my experience over the past few years, I would I would expand that chapter considerably. <laughs> I mean, there's actually a risk that it might be an entire book in itself. Um, so it's going to be a challenge to even, it might be a challenge to fit it in, in the book um you know i've certainly you know learned a lot about how organizations adopt or or to be more specifically misadopt mis- to the microservice architecture um so i could imagine adding a chapter there about um about you know anti-patterns of microservice adoption
1: mm, we'd like to talk more about anti-patterns um because you've you've, meant, you've talked about those extensively, and so we'd like to get. We often talk about the uh, organizational change required to implement microservices. When we've, when we've had these podcasts with other guests, and we often talk about how it's an organizational challenge, not just a technology challenge. But you've gone through a bunch of anti-patterns, and I'd like to go through some of those technicalities. Before we do, you wrote your book in 2018. We recently had James Lewis, who with Martin Fowler in 2014 wrote the definition of microservices. How influential was that uh, for you, that, that paper?
2: Well, yeah, you know what's funny is, so I actually got interested in this style of architecture, um, as in, you know, breaking up what would otherwise be a large monolith. Into multiple services back in 2010. um, Right. Which, and um, I, I read this book, The Art of Scalability. And in the book, they had this scale cube, which was a three dimensional model of scaling. And one of the dimensions was the y axis, which was functional decomposition. And that that really resonated with me because um, I up until then I had just been building a series of monolithic applications and 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 the last one had actually been the original Cloud Foundry that was a mono the, the original Cloud Foundry um, was, was actually a monolith and even though it was built by a tiny team i.e. two people mm. it was actually quite elaborate. Quite you know, it wasn't your standard sort of enterprise application, and there was all this diverse functionality packaged into a single um, Java WAR file. And had we at the time built it using the microservice architecture, we would actually solved a whole bunch of problems. And so this book really, the Scale Cube model and functional decomposition really resonated with me, Um, but I didn't have a name for it. And I actually gave a talk about, about this in 2012, and it was like decomposing applications for, I don't know, testability and scalability or something. It was one ility and some other ility. But I did, you know, and I talked about it. Well, maybe we could call this a modular polyglot architecture. But that doesn't really doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. Um you yeah. And then so people, you know, I, you know, so it was funny. It was kind of new to me, but then of course Amazon had been had, had adopted this architecture back like 2002 and eBay had adopted this architecture back in 2008. But it was there wasn't really a name other than this sort of distributed system, which is yeah. kind of boring. Um, so that paper, you know, which
0: pr-
2: which promoted the term microservices Um, even though for reasons I could go into is actually a terrible, terribly misleading term. Kind of like, you know, that was a term that the whole community could adopt, the whole industry could adopt as well. And it generated a lot of momentum, right? Mm -hmm. You know, up to and including vendors who had previously been cloud washing their products, now trying to claim they were microservices relevant as well. But it, it, you know, that just having a, ter- a term that everyone understood kind of acted as a great unifier. Interesting.
1: You said in, uh, previously in order to migrate to microservices, you have to learn how to strangle the monolith. Can you explain that strategy?
2: Yeah. Which, which, you know, interestingly, that's sort of a slightly violent term. Um, and, and so Martin, it, it actually goes back to a, a, a a, re, a strategy that Martin Fowler, uh, an application modernization strategy that Martin Fowler promoted in 2006, I believe known as this, well, it was this strangler application. And he has since modified it to the, the strangler fig <laughs> pattern. Um, and so I guess one day he was going for a walk in a rainforest, I think in Queensland, Right. Do they have rainforests? They do in Northern Queensland. Yeah. So, and he got inspired. He came across a a strangler fig, which is this thing that it's this plant that starts off life in the canopy of a tree and then actually grows down to the ground and and establishes roots and basically grows so large it envelops or, or sort of, you could say, shades out the tree and that can actually cause the tree to die. Um, and so that, that was where he got inspired to, to, modern, to think about modernizing applications that way. So instead of doing a big bang rewrite, which is extremely time consuming and risky, you actually incrementally build up a strangler application ar- around the, the legacy application, sort of migrating functionality out of it you know, very iteratively. Um, And so the legacy application shrinks and the strangler application continues to grow. And so that was his generic application modernization pattern. And that's how you should migrate to a a microservice architecture. So you, you gradually migrate functionality one module at a time out of your monolith into this strangler application or strangler fig application, um, and yeah, you know, and that's so it's this incremental, iterative process, uh, which, which can take a number of years. Um, but the key thing is you focus on those areas of your application that give you the sort of the greatest return on investment. So, say the areas of the application that are core to the business that you know that give you the competitive advantage those parts of the application that you're changing constantly.
1: And I guess starting off with probably the simplest one with the most narrow scope possible as well so you get an easy quick win and say we've now uh, you know migrated one tiny tiny little bit of our monolith into a microservice and they've got the learnings associated with that.
2: Yeah. Well you might want to practice you might want to practice on some easy parts but you really want you you know, very quickly you should focus on those parts of the application that give you the, the, the um, kind of have a module that's constantly being developed, you turn it into a service so that you can quickly develop it. Um, or if maybe there's a module that's causing scalability or reliability issues, you migrate that into a service so that you can scale it independently.
1: Now, interestingly, you responded to a tweet a couple of months ago saying that microservices and monoliths can both be mistakes. Uh, How did that come about and what did you mean by that?
2: Um, Well, you know, there's a lot these days. If you want to get a high level of engagement on Twitter, you should just tweet microservices suck. (laughs) Um or the mon you know, the monolith is the way to go.
0: It's having um, a
1: resurgence, isn't it, the monolith? There's there's been a lot of people yeah, argue well, that the monolith has, the monolith has still has its
2: place. Well, you yeah, know, I mean, you know, it, well, I think to a large extent, right. I mean, what's happening is we're following the Gartner hyper, right? Where you know, with, with like every technology seems to go through this, right? So it gets hyped up and, you know, microservices are for everything and you reach the peak of inflated expectations. And then, you, of course, you realize that it's not appropriate and people get frustrated Um, you know, they build distributed monoliths that are worse than an actual monolith, and then they can give conference talks on it, but it kind of sucks for the business. And then, you know, you, what, it was the trough of disillusionment, right? So we're we're sort of in this backlash phase. Um, and so it's sort of, to some extent it's understandable, but, um, you know, but my approach has always been you know which is why i created microservices.io and created the patterns language right is that you know the monolithic architecture is a pattern you know it solves a problem in a particular way and it has certain benefits and drawbacks microservice architecture is another solution with benefits and drawbacks right and neither is neither of them is universally applicable or universally wrong And and your job as an architect is to pick the architecture that is best suited to to your particular application, to your particular context, right? Um, And I sort of thought, you know, which is why I I, kind of started down the patterns path, right, as opposed to I didn't create a microservices manifesto, right? Because I, I think those are sort of garbage, actually, apart from the Agile manifesto, because I think Agile is generally good. But, you know, a lot of these sort of manif- manifestos are just sort of kind of, they just don't, they're, they're not engineering documents, right? Because, you know, every solution is very, you know, the right solution really does depend on a particular context.
1: Well, I'd like to talk about some more of the engineering principles here. So you talk about anti-patterns for microservices and various interesting phrases like magic pixie dust and red flags uh, and all the like. So can, can yeah. you, you explain some of the anti-patterns of microservices?
2: Yeah. Um, so this th- these were sort of patterns that I observed while basically consulting with various organizations. You know, there was this time when you could get on a plane and you could fly to places and go and have face-to-face meetings. (laughs) Sounds awful. I mean, you gotta leave your
1: house. Yeah. You actually
2: have, you know what? You have to put on pants. Really? (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Anyway, apparently people did this, right? No. So, so, you know, I spent like, I mean, I think I was flying like 160,000 miles a year or something like that. It was kind of insane. Um, But it was just like visiting all of these organizations and helping them adopt microservices. Um, And yeah, and and so I sort of, you know, with some clients, I saw these patterns, sort of anti-patterns of adoption. And, you you know, you mentioned magic pixie dust, right? You know, and that's sort of believing that, you know, the microservices are this magic pixie dust. You just sprinkle it on your development organization and it will solve all of your delivery problems. Right. And in reality, like if you have issues with your development process and your organizational structure, throwing microservices into the mix is like, won't fix those problems and it's very likely to make them worse. Right. Um, so that 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 was a yeah that that's a common pattern and then you know that ties back to the earlier thing about like microservices hype and just seeing them as as the you know this amazing thing that you should just use always right um, and then you know the other pattern which is really interesting is like my kind of measuring success as the number, you know, as a function of the number of microservices you have, the more we have, the more successful we sh- we're going to be. Right. And in particular, there was one client where CIO just announced, do we're going to do microservices and it was a very sort of top down hierarchical organization. And I meet developers and it was like, you know, why are you doing microservices? Well, my manager told me to, <laughs> right. And it was almost like their bonus was dependent on how many services they created, the right? <laughs> um, but, you the know, that, that's a terrible... Word.
1: What's the red what's
2: that? flag law? Yeah. Oh, okay. And then the red flag law. Um, so the, kind of the idea there was that, you know, in the early 19th century, when when the automobile came out, some jurisdictions, at least I don't think this is sort of um, kind of an apocryphal story. Some jurisdictions required a pedestrian to walk in front of the car, waving a red flag. So you you, you had this vehicle, which presumably could go faster than a walk than a pedestrian, but they were slowed down. And so the, the kind of the idea with this that pattern is you've adopted microservices, but you've kept in place your existing organizational structure and your existing processes. So you can't properly benefit, right? You know, like, you know, one client I worked with, you could only deploy to production, uh, like on the third Saturday of the month at midnight, right? That was just, that was the rule, which is great but it's like you've adopted them. You want to adopt a microservice architecture that lets you deploy safely into production many times a day, but you're, not gonna, <laughs> but you're not gonna let people develop, you know, deploy into production many times a day. I mean, so it's sort of very reminiscent of this kind of, this pedestrian waving a red flag, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the objectives is to become a more agile organization with uh, deployments more frequent deployments and change uh, yeah well, that, that, that.
2: that's that's the big driver right I like to think of it you know I, I kind of look at it like you know and COVID is a great example of this right is the world in general and say the markets within which which businesses operate are very sort of volatile and certain complex and ambiguous right? you have no idea where competitive threats are going to come from. Apparently now we have to contend with a what global pandemic, right? Which is, which you know, which is directly impacted IT, a lot of organizations, right? Um, so that means that IT needs to be nimble, right? They need to deliver software, you know, rapidly, frequently, reliably, and sustainably, right? And you know, then that and how you do that is a combination of like devops continuous delivery continuous deployment having your organizational structure as a network of loosely coupled teams and then the third element here is your architecture right so you you know if you think about devops that's all about delivering a small stream of changes very rapidly and you know rapid you know stream of changes into production So that requires an architecture that's testable and deployable, right? You think about the organizational structure, you know, you think about Conway's law, where in order to have a loosely coupled organization, you actually have to have a loosely coupled architecture as well. So you need a modular, loosely coupled architecture there. So... You know, if you think about those characteristics, it has to be deployable and testable because that's what DevOps requires. It has to be loosely coupled and modular. That's what the organizational structure requires, right? So, you know, so as an architect, you, you know, in an if you're working in an environment where you do have to deliver software, you know, rapidly, frequently, reliably you need to make sure that your architecture has these characteristics, right? And this is what I call the success triangle. And sometimes, you know, if you've got a monolith, you know, sometimes a monolith is just fine, particularly when you have a small application and a small team of people. But as the application grows, right, as long-lived applications typically do, right, and also if you're super successful you get a bunch of VC funding and before you know it you've got a couple of 100 developers or more right you, that's put, you know that large team size is pushing you in the direction of using the microservice architecture you know rather than having a lot of developers all contributing and clashing trying to deliver this large code base, if you break it up in each, and each any into an architecture where each team has their own service, right, Um, that that you're likely to be much more successful.
1: Are you seeing the momentum being driven by migration of legacy systems or in new greenfield development?
2: Um, You know, most people I've met with over the years have been Develop, uh, already, it's like enterprises have already written their key business applications, right? And and you, and the majority of the scenarios have been, um, you know, uh, migrating a legacy monolith to a microservice architecture. Um, and even newer companies, like you know, startups that are just a few years old, you know, they 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 have started with a monolith which is usually a good approach by the way right because if you're a small startup you don't have a massive code base a large team of people so you don't really have the problems that the microservice architecture evolves but very rapidly i think you know particularly VC funded startups they actually find that they actually they've got a big application big monolith on their hands and they need to um, you know they need to split it up and migrate it to a to a um, microservice architecture.
1: Understood. Interesting. So, what are the, what are the technology changes, if any? Uh, like you know, we've seen uh, protocols like gRPC, and are there any other sort of technologies which are influencing microservice adoption?
2: Well, sort of what I what what I find interesting is, and this is actually another anti pattern, is that you know, like organizations often focus on the technology side of it. Um, you know, like, like there was actually one client I worked with a few years ago where before they even implemented their first service, you know, the, this VP of engineering was going, well, should we go spend, you know, six figures on some fancy PaaS platform, Right. I should. <laughs> well, it depends whether, yeah, if you're a PaaS vendor, sure, you, you'd like it. But, but you know, what? and I, I'm just saying, you know, how you, how about waiting? Waiting until you've actually deployed some services and operated them and actually properly understand the problems that you're going to be facing. Um, and before making such a big purchasing decision, right? Because, you, you know, if you're doing it up front like that, you're, you're making decisions when you have the least amount of experience and the least knowledge, right? Um, but that's sort of a generic thing. It, it's sort of like technology, 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 whereas in reality, the most critical issues, decisions that you have to face really are around, um, what are my services, right? And you know, and t- you know, what is what are the responsibilities of each service? What is the API that each service is offer, and how do the services collaborate, right? And you know, that's and you know, that's that's and that kind of decision making is actually very abstract and it's fairly pretty independent of the underlying technologies that you're using right I mean in fact the closest sort of the the only aspect of technology that in that's critical is that you should have a primarily a loosely coupled asynchronous architecture as opposed to one where your services are communicating using synchronous protocols like well rest and and the sort of the synchronous aspects of grpc
1: I understand i mean you built some amazing resources for this on chrisrichardson.net um tell us uh what sort of uh, things people can expect to find on your website and the resources. Be there. well
2: yeah i mean my content sort of split across microservices.io and chrisrichardson.net so microservices.io is primarily the patent language and there's a bunch mm-hmm. of other stuff there, links to presentations, code samples and so on. And then on chriswickardson.net, there's just ver- various blog posts on whatever topics on my mind. Um, <laughs> not enough. I, I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't really blog enough. Um, <laughs> I keep too much bottled up inside my head.
1: <laughs> uh, Chris, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a pleasure.
2: Uh, we look forward to speaking to you again in the future. Well, it was good good chatting. enjoyed the, the
0: discussion. All right, that's a wrap for this round of cocktails. To our listeners, what did you think of this podcast episode? Let us know in the comments section from the podcast platform you're listening to. Also, please visit our website at www.torocloud.com for a transcript of this episode, as well as our blogs and our products. We're also on social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Talk to us there, because we listen. Just look for Toro Cloud. Again, thank you very much for listening to us today. On behalf of the entire team here at Toro Cloud, this has been Kevin Montalbo for Coding Over Cocktails. Cheers!